I'm Pauline Vituna. I'm the Disability Day worker for 3CR, and I'm joining you today from the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. I'm really grateful to be able to live and, and learn on this land, and I pay respect from myself and my ancestors to Kulin Nation ancestors and elders, past and present, as well as any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are tuning in today. You're listening to F Work, a special show for 3CR's Disability Day Rest is Survival broadcast. My co-conspirator for this show is my incredible friend, and at this point a veteran of the Disability Day broadcast, Leilani. Hi, um, thank you so much, Pauline. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm Leilani. I love to be referred to as your co-conspirator. Um, that's so good. Um, yeah, so happy to be back again. Um, this is such a special day and I look forward to it every year. It just is so replenishing and um, healing. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Pauline, for, for everything you do every year of this incredible show. Someone said to me recently, I don't remember who, um, I just met them and was telling them about Disability Day. And they said, I honestly think that that is the best um, show on 3CR every year and I was like I agree that's so cool <laughs> it's a credit to everyone who who is on air during like it's such a an incredible honor to be able to put these voices to air and force you all to listen to this <laughs> for one whole day for 12 hours mm-hmm. so yeah so in this program we are going to talk a lot more about the 3CR disability day theme which, as I said, is rest is survival, and go into some of the ideas around the left's preoccupation with labour and work and the impact of this on disabled people who cannot work. But first we thought we'd address something that happened recently that has had and will continue to have a negative impact on disabled people who rely on the platform for all kinds of reasons that may not be applicable to non-disabled users who have the option of moving to a different platform or just ceasing to be online altogether. And I'm, of course, talking about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and the destruction that is ensuing after that decision, um, which has been a long time coming. I mean, we all knew it was coming, but the effects of it have really been seen in the last month. So we know that Twitter employers were tweeting about the layoffs at Twitter under who I refer to as the billionaire gambler Elon Musk, and they included the entire accessibility engineering team. This was the team that helped make the website more usable for people with disabilities. So sensory challenges, mobility issues, and visual or auditory impairment. The team worked to make the Twitter site compatible with screen readers and provide alt text and auto caption support for video and voice tweets. Uh, On November 18th, the Washington Post published an article about how both this and the dismantling of the infrastructure needed to moderate hate speech and abuse were making Twitter unusable and disrupted a literal lifeline for so many chronically ill and disabled people. And there's a part in the article that I'll read out. It said, Twitter has long been uniquely suited for people with disabilities in a way that can't be easily replicated elsewhere. Because it's primarily focused on the written word, it's easy to use for blind people, deaf people, and those who struggle with speech or fine motor control issues, compared with social media sites like TikTok and Instagram, which emphasize visuals and audio. Twitter also has broad reach. Platforms like Reddit and Mastodon group people 
into specific community spaces or servers, making it harder for posts to gain the attention of the general public. And many people with disabilities use Twitter to organize, fundraise, and run businesses. And also to that point, the article talked to someone named Abi Awole, living in so-called Canada, who has multiple disabilities and who used Twitter to earn an income from her online store. So it was the platform she had the most success on because she amassed heaps of followers. Um, She sells items for disabled people. And she made the point that this is the only way a lot of disabled people in isolation can actually make money. When the workforce isn't accessible and there are multiple barriers to disabled people, especially those who are multiply marginalized, to being employed, for this infrastructure that enabled so much self-employment to be dismantled so quickly is having and will continue to have a big and bad impact. And then there's the essential fundraising that happens every single day on the platform in all time zones. I mean, extremely marginalized people fundraising for the most basic life necessities, life-saving surgery, medical costs, accessible housing, mobility aids, funeral costs, just about everything that you can think of, every life challenge. Disabled people on the extreme margins are forced every day to seek help in this way because they are isolated or they're within really poor communities or just completely unsupported by the communities that they are supposed to be a part of. And the article actually talks to someone named Victor Manuel, who's a 24-year-old who has used Twitter for online fundraising to help pay for his housing, his medication and health care. And he has multiple disabilities and is immunocompromised, but temporarily lost his family's support when he came out as transgender. And that really speaks to the fact that if you're living at intersections, it's so much harder for you to get support. Sometimes it's not a given that you will be held by your families and communities. And a a lot of people who are living really isolated lives, a lot of disabled people have to turn to online fundraising as much as it's poo-pooed by even leftists and and uh, people on the left and socialists, it's absolutely essential. So whether you want to call it mutual aid or not, we don't really care. It's essential and it pays for people to survive ongoing, especially in a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm already emotional, like just having, having, yeah, having you say all of that. Yeah, Twitter has been an absolute lifeline for me and for a lot of disabled and chronically ill people you know, people that experience mental illness. It's how we find, how a lot of us have found community or discovered, you know, disability justice and helped us connect to other people, other disabled people and, you know, find that support that you can't, we can't access easily offline. And it is so distressing to even think that that this platform could be taken away from us. It's so important to, like you said, people at the extreme margins, not just not just the disabled community, but people experience, you know, like refugees in detention use it to, to be able to communicate with the outside world to keep us updated on what's going on. Like it's, it's really important to us and to a lot of people. And, you know, for me as well, and for a lot of us, um, uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a really accessible social media platform. I find uh, Instagram and TikTok very overwhelming. But what I love about Twitter is that it is text-based. So it's not just this onslaught of images. And yeah, it's, it's, 
it's a lot more accessible um, for people that struggle with cognitive dysfunction, brain fog, attention issues, um, due to the way that it presents information in the short form, you know, 160 characters for a tweet. And even if people are sharing longer threads, it's still really nice to have it broken up into those uh, 160 character tweets because you can take one tweet at a time. Um, I I really struggle with um with uh with reading long things um and it's difficult when you when you care about a lot of stuff and you really want to do the readings and you want to um, engage with with important literature. Twitter has really 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 helped me to um, still be able to take in a lot of a lot of ideas and um, learn about yeah just educate myself on different people's experiences and I just I will be so heartbroken if um if this is taken away from us and yeah and it's also super important for I think it's the most important social media platform for staying up to date on historical events that are occurring in in real time as they develop uprisings, wars, um, important court rulings, elections. You know, it was so important during the uprisings and the protests that were occurring in 2020 because of um, the murder of George Floyd to know what was going on, to know what the police were doing, to know what how communities were were reacting and what you know local politicians and councils it was like it's so important to to be holding them accountable in real time and to get actual grassroots reporting and news i can't imagine where we will get that information from in the future if twitter goes down because what i think what what you find when you are a a twitter user the way we are is that you have to take that information to Instagram because they don't know. They don't know what's going on until it's put into an infographic for them weeks later. Like they are just not in touch with things the way that Twitter users are as we could be- we get the information first. We get it live and we then have to take I try to take it all the time to Instagram. So I'm like, "You guys, this is going on." Like yeah, it's like people that don't use Twitter. They just, they don't have the same awareness of all the things that are happening in the world. (laughs) And it's really scary to think of that, that access being taken away because it, it is a huge platform for, for oppressed people. Yeah. In general. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we probably won't get into the reasons why it's been taken away. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion actually on Twitter at the moment about the purging of uh, so-called Antifa accounts and, and things like that. And they're talking about Antifa as if it's like an organization and not just shorthand for anti-fascist. But anyway, <laughs> um, you t- sort of touched on the fact that it's so essential for like marginalized people to just be able to have a voice there. And that kind of reminds me of some of the disability hashtags we've known and loved over the years that have been started there and for people who don't use Twitter, um, there's a function called a hashtag that allows you to allows people to find all tweets related to a particular topic in one location. And when there's lots of people using that hashtag, 
it becomes a trending topic and even more people see it. And we're talking like thousands more, thousands more people will see that topic. And so, uh, you know, almost global, well, actually global, actually genuinely global conversations about disability have been able to be had on that platform that I can't imagine would have occurred anywhere else. Like there's just no other place that that those conversations would have had that reach. And those hashtags have also allowed disabled people to find each other, chronically ill people to find each other. There's a hashtag called NEIS Void, which a lot of chronically ill people use. And if you go there and look at it now, because it is still active, there are still users on on Twitter, but a lot of people are moving away and feeling uncertain about when the infrastructure of Twitter will just collapse. So a lot of users have have left, but there are still disabled people using it. And NEIS Void, um, if you go and look at that hashtag, you will always find people consoling each other, offering each other um, advice about medications, about how to cope with pain, just encouraging words. You just see such a warm and loving community around these hashtags. You wouldn't understand if you're someone who just poo-poo social media. It's like not real. It is real. It is very real. There's real people behind those screens and behind those names. And they're they're being a lifeline to each other on that platform. And there's another hashtag that I'll discuss called Disability So White. And this one was meaningful to me because it looked at a particular problem uh, within disability advocacy, which is the wideness of the space. And that is true across continents in the in the Western world. The hashtag was started in 2016 by Felissa Thompson, uh, who's an African-American advocate. And she started it to facilitate a discussion on the erasure of black people and people of color with disabilities and also to challenge the wideness of disability representation. I'm personally less concerned about representation than the material and structural oppression of multiply marginalized people, but it was actually in the context of this hashtag trending years ago, that is to say it got a lot of attention because a lot of people were using it and so even more people um, saw it and then more people started using it and adding to it and then I saw it and it was through that momentum that I was able to start seeing more tweets by proponents of disability justice which is the framework that I am interested in and committed to developing and adapting in this location and what the 3CR Disability Day broadcast has centered since 2019 which looks to the liberation of all people including multiply marginalized disabled people beyond the capitalist nation state and, you know, systems of oppression that stem from that. So, yeah, it, it's been such a good learning tool. And I so resonated with what you said, Leilani, about how it's been really accessible as someone outside of the academy and outside of spaces where these kinds of like highly intellectual theoretical conversations are taking place. I What I see in real time is real multiple marginalized people theorizing about their own experiences and theorizing about it in really direct language, succinct language, not necessarily academic language, but also seeing people who do have academic training sharing ideas in sort of bite-sizable, <laughs> digestible ways. Like, And that, probably similar to you, I just I joined Twitter when I was really unwell. I was very traumatized, and the effect on trauma on my brain was to slow everything down and to make it really difficult to to concentrate, which is like why I think I took to Twitter so quickly because it allows you to jump around and just connect thoughts, which is what the inside of my brain looks like now. 
So it was really helpful to be able to get access to theory in an accessible form. That is theory written by academics, but also theory that is being like lived and embodied and thought through now by living, breathing people from the margins. And I love that I'm able to log into Twitter and see that and read that and and also share my thoughts. I don't do it as much now. I haven't really, since the pandemic started, tweeted myself a lot at all. But prior to that, I was tweeting regularly and um, interacting with other other people's tweets regularly. And it was so helpful for me to understand that the way that I was thinking about the world, I wasn't alone in that. And that there were so many other multiply marginalized disabled people who were seeing what I was seeing, who were having to negotiate systems in the same way that I was and trying to figure things out, like figure out how do we survive this? How do we get through this? What do, you know, all of that sort of stuff, which is basically what theory is. It's figuring, figuring shit out, figuring how to do things, how to, how to survive within the realities that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. I and I I just want to say like yeah, I really the the disability so white hashtag meant a lot to me too. I did I really did feel alienated from the whiteness of um disability discourse a lot of the time and just like you know the space that was being t- taken up and um that hashtag really helped me reconnect with myself as a disabled person and made me yeah it just made me feel like okay about being frustrated with that and just made me realize yeah I wasn't wrong in feeling like that is a problem it is it still is a problem um and it's so incredible like how many amazing disabled thinkers of color I found through that hashtag uh how staunch they are it was such an important hashtag. It still is. And yeah, I think it helped a lot of disabled black people and people of color find each other and start really important conversations about whiteness and about our own experiences and how they differ from those of um, yeah white people with disabilities. Yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about things we loved about Twitter. So pretty much we love black Twitter, black disabled Twitter. I'd like to say a shout out to Black Bella Twitter as well. Black Bella Twitter goes so hard. Um, yeah, the the jokes and the memes that you don't get anywhere else. Um, what I was saying before about how you get news in real time a lot sooner than everyone else, you also get jokes and memes like before anyone else. Like a lot of um, a lot of memes and really really funny jokes are born on Twitter and they there's such a delayed time period in which they make their way to other platforms and I can't yeah I can't count how many times friends of mine that are just on Instagram will send me a meme and it's like I saw that a month ago babe like (laughs) you're late (laughs) um it's just more in touch with the heartbeat of the world (laughs) it's It's just more it's quick and it's really in touch with with everything yeah so we also wanted to like reflect a little bit about um moments we loved on twitter um uh, there's been so many and we were meant to think of more we didn't but we've got a few here the two that we have i think are really 
Yeah. Ones and recent. They like from this year. Yeah. So Pauline, you were saying you loved the slap. Uh, yeah. So, for the, and I have to explain why. I, I mean, I didn't love the slap, the action itself. <laughs> I'm, um, I have, I'm actually neutral. I have no opinion on whether that was right or wrong. I'm also but, neutral <laughs> on that. But uh, what we're talking about is, of course, Will Smith at the Oscars uh, this year. I can't believe it was this year. My God. Oh, my know? goodness. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, slapping Chris, Chris Rock, Rock? The, yeah, the host yeah, yeah. of the, the Oscars. and. Um, it was, I mean, there's many reasons for why that happened. They were saying it was because of a joke that was an ableist joke. I agree that it was ableist, and I won't get into why. There's plenty of discourse online that you can look up as to why. But I think one of the reasons, it's so strange. Okay, this is a weird moment that I'm going to admit to, but I had a premonition that this was going to happen. <laughs> and I was like, why am I having this weird, What is what is the relevance of this to anything? And then disability trended for a week. <laughs> And I was like, "That's why I felt that coming." <laughs> I just thought it was the, I was. It was a really interesting time. I followed the discourse that happened. A lot of it was jokes. I mean, Twitter had a a field day with that. There were a lot of people who took it very seriously, and they were like, "This is terrible. This is a terrible, violent act." There were oh my gosh. many more people, and I would say the majority of people just thought it was a funny event that happened. They were very detached from it and just saw it as entertainment. But I was following um, a lot of the American disability advocates, and particularly black disability advocates, black women disability advocates, who were using the moment to discuss deeper issues around, you know, the vilification of disabled people, and and also other things that were happening at the time in relation to COVID. And I just thought it was beautiful how that, like, this totally random, weird celebrity event sparked this discourse, and a lot of people think that's like silly and it is let's be real it is but i love i loved that aspect of twitter as well like something totally random could happen and then people would would use that as a way to get into talking about real stuff and i enjoy that i actually enjoy that i didn't think it was too earnest or like ruining the fun i just thought the chaos of it all i really enjoyed the fact that there were jokes about it also, people taking it really seriously as an act of violence, and then other people using it as a way to discuss issues related to, in this case, disability and the vilification and bullying of disabled people. So, yeah, I enjoy that moment. So thank you, Will Smith, for taking one for the team. Yeah, thank you, Will. That was truly a moment to be online and to be on Twitter. Um, yeah, that was good times. And yeah, like, yeah, I loved all the jokes. Um, and I loved, yeah, I loved that we got to talk about ableism, like, outside of just us, you know? That was really good. And it was really funny seeing some of the overreactions from, you know majority non-black people like I, I think that was a big this big white Hollywood producer who tweeted like he could have died he could have killed him and it was just like whoa <laughs> like just relax <laughs> it was just a little slap um but yeah that was funny and I enjoyed it um all aspects of that I just I love being on Twitter in those moments where everyone's reacting and it's it, you do feel this sense of like connectedness uh, this this camaraderie that you don't always get on Twitter because even though you'll always find people that um, you'll you're, you can always find a community on there 
Um, you can you can also always find Nazis and <laughs> people that people that think you should die. So yeah, when big moments like that happen, it's really it's really great to feel that camaraderie. Like we're all laughing together at this silly thing. Another big moment we loved was the Queen dying. That was what a time! I think that was what that's that was absolutely my favorite time on Twitter ever. Yeah, I miss it. I remember like a week later, I was like, I miss when the queen died. <laughs> um, yeah, the the jokes were unbelievable. The celebrations, Irish Twitter went hard. They were absolutely going off. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think like two thirds of the world were celebrating. <laughs> We're celebrating all the, you know, all the, all, the all of the, all of the, all of the colonized nations, you know, that were imperialized by Britain. It was a good time. It was a good moment. It was important. We needed it. <laughs> we needed a, a symbolic win. And the release of that. Yeah, and it was yeah. really funny because all those people, like, there are those people that are really obsessed with the royal family like really, really deeply obsessed. You know, they come out of the woodwork and it was just funny to see them, <laughs> see them. Um, yeah. Take me back. Take me back, honestly. And it was, it was great because the jokes had started like a year prior, you know, when she sort of disappeared from the public and Twitter was like counting down the days. Like it was, we were already, you know, we were ready to go. We were prepared. So when it finally happened, it was like, oh my God, like we weren't wrong. Like, so yeah. Yeah. And you just sort of touched on something that I wanted to end this particular topic on, which was, so we know that there's all this controversy around it journalists embedding tweets in articles or quoting them in articles, particularly without consent, and that that's a huge issue. But I think um, we are also understanding now the need to archive things like tweets because it isn't a given that they last forever. And when you have a, a platform like that that is documenting so much history in real time, um, if that goes away, so does all that so that history. And it's a real history, like you said, um, so many political moments have been captured and broadcast on Twitter first. Um, so if that goes away, like we don't have a record of that. Technologies are changing so quickly that we need to find ways to archive all of this stuff. I mean, if we're archiving everything else and, um, you know, um, anyone who's working in knowledge production in the academy is always thinking about that, about, you know, how knowledge is preserved and what, knowledge is prioritized i think there needs to be some serious thought of how things like community radio are archived and also twitter at this particular moment in time it's it's very important to start thinking about how online communities archive the work that they do online which is real work absolutely organizing yeah um, i i agree um if i could just say one last thing um yeah, yeah i just want to give like a quick shout out to you know, Palestinian Twitter, um, that's, that's a really good example of like getting the news from, uh, real Palestinians in, in real time, because so much of, uh, of the media sides with Israel and misrepresents what's going on. And I, I really do worry because, you know, multiple, like it's, it's, it's ongoing, the violence, 
that Palestinian people experience. Um, it's part of history. It's part of what is going to happen, what's going to happen when these big events happen and continue to happen and we don't have a record of it anymore. It's so important that we, we figure out a way to preserve the record from marginalized people and people that are resisting, you know, occupation, especially when so much of like the mainstream media will not, is so passive in the face of it and not brave enough to report what Palestinian people are experiencing. So shout outs to them. And like, yeah, we got to, we got to do something about archiving, keeping records and uh, making sure there's, we have access to the information. Yeah, totally. Well, on that note, I think we'll move to our next topic, which is actually the name of the show today, which is F work. So, just thinking about the theme of rest is survival and what inspired it, I personally had to rest all year for health reasons. So my body has been struggling since the pandemic began for, for a number of reasons, but I think a lot of it was stress-induced, honestly. And at the beginning of this year, my body really forced me to rest. So I had to rest and completely focus on my body on a day-to-day basis and rest a lot. And I'm very mindful of the fact that I was able to take that rest because I have stable housing and because I I had access to a welfare payment. And yeah, during that time I had, I had access to welfare. So even though I was unable to access the full medical care that I needed and that I still need, I, I was able to rest. And with safe housing, I'm, I was able to just, you know, be proactive about taking care of myself. And I'm not someone who requires care. So I was able to just, you know, basically exist at home like any any sick person would when they're recuperating. And at the same time, I witnessed so many disabled friends and um, chosen family uh, absolutely breaking and buckling and um, in some cases dying under the weight of having to exist as multiply marginalized disabled people under colonial capitalism in the colony. And they were doing you know, unpaid care work to support even more disabled people, people who are even more disabled than they are and even poorer than they are. And, um, you know, and that's essentially what the nation state forces extremely marginalized people to do because there is no state support for us. Communities are essentially left to their themselves to, to organize around this stuff and take care of each other, and that's exactly what's happened. It's not reported in the news, but that is what has been happening before the pandemic and in even more so now, and people are burnt out, completely burnt out. Um, so I'm very mindful of the fact that it was a, a privilege, even though technically I am living on the poverty line. Um, I have the the privilege of being able to rest, and it shouldn't be a privilege, it should be a right, which we'll get into later. But for some years now, I have also witnessed discussions about rest led by non-disabled people that completely exclude you know, disabled realities and the necessity of radical change to you know, the economic system in this society through abolition of capitalism and a total transformation in the ways we share resources. That's not discussed in, I find, and witness in discussions about rest and the political importance of rest when it's led by non-disabled people. 
And that's really frustrating, to be honest, to witness that and that erasure because it, it just doesn't make any sense. So the theme to me speaks to the idea that, one, rest is essential to human survival. That was the first thing I was thinking of when conceptualizing the theme for this year. Number two, rest is something that should be something we are entitled to, something central to our communal lives, because it's essential to the health of relationships and to like the creative process. Like We cannot do anything without resting first, and our relationships suffer. They suffer tremendously when we don't have access to rest. So to not uh, prioritize that as a, like a central central to our communities and how we organize makes no sense because um, communities are essentially relationships. That's all they are, just interconnected relationships with with each other. And number three, poor multiply marginalized disabled people are denied access to rest and therefore to survival, which I was um, I mentioned at the, the top of this topic. So a couple of friends of mine, I think maybe two months ago, they shared this article that I just wanted to read from now. And the title of the article is called Why Has the Left Deprioritized COVID? It's by Raya Small. And yeah, it was published in September this year. And there was one quote that really stood out. And it said, The fetishization of the abled worker renders invisible other members of the working class, sick and disabled people, and people who've aged out of the workforce. It even renders invisible the white male industrial worker as soon as an accident or illness anything from a job injury to depression to COVID-19, takes him out of the factory and into the hospital, the rehab facility, the private home, or the shelter system. And that really stood out to me because, well, because of all the things that I mentioned at the top, but also I do think that uh, Marxist socialists, um, unionists, um, you know, labor rights organizers need to reframe how we think about work itself and the deification of work is deeply forward. I think as humans, we have intrinsic value outside of our ability to perform labor, to perform work. And I do understand that disability rights activists continue to advocate for our right to work and to be paid for that work. And that is absolutely essential. Intellectually disabled people are working in heinous conditions. They're not being paid at all. Sometimes they're being underpaid. They're being overworked. They're being horribly exploited, horribly exploited. So that's absolutely essential and ongoing advocacy. And of course, you know, during the pandemic, there's been disability rights activists talking about the expansion and continuation of working from home and the removal of other barriers from workplaces. But, you know, we could update that conversation and say, well, a lot of those measures have been revoked. So that is something that still needs to be advocated for because, People didn't get it, despite saying that they got it in the first year of the pandemic. A lot of measures, they made it accessible for chronically ill people to continue to work and participate in the workforce from home have been removed and they've had to fight for that, which is incomprehensible to me. But setting that aside, what I would like to see is us asking for our right to rest and organizing our relations around that fundamental principle. And yeah, I wanted to know your thoughts on that, Leilan. Yeah, um yeah, when we when we were talking about this um what we're doing now, when we were planning for it, um when you spoke about you know how a lot of disability rights activists um advocate for our right to work. Um you said I want I want 
the right to rest. And yeah, that's like the whole point of the whole theme of uh, the Disability Day broadcast this year. And it it's so it's so fundamental to the world right now, to all of us. And working cannot be and is not a priority for many disabled people, many sick people. Yeah, I've been really unwell for the whole of my adulthood. I've had to prioritize myself and uh, taking care of myself and trying to trying to heal from a lot of the complex trauma that is the cause of me being really unwell and it just can't it just can't be the focus for a lot of people's lives and it shouldn't be the expectation either we talked we talked about as well you know I'm Polynesian and Pauline is Melanesian as islander people the concept of work in the way that we experience it under capitalism does not speak to us. It doesn't speak to our spirits. It never, ever has. I've never understood it. It's not our culture to, um, it's not part of how we live, how we lived. It's work itself is not inherently meaningful especially a lot of the work that we're forced to do under capitalism, which is just busy work, which is just creating a lot of waste and exhausting people and, you know, making people sick and making people stressed. You know, I I really feel that in my soul, in my spirit, in my bones, in my body. I, I can't do work that isn't meaningful to me. My body won't let me my spirit won't let me it's not it's not something that I'm able to do and um I've never I've always been confused as a child growing up I was just why can't I do this why can't why is it so easy for a lot of people to fit into this system and uh, yeah I think it's just the last few years I just I came to understand like I think it really is because like not just because I'm chronically ill, um, not just because I have a lot of complex trauma that makes it unbearable, intolerable to work in certain environments and for that many hours. It's because, you know, as Indigenous people, that's not part of how I I want to live. Um, it's not how our ancestors lived. That's just not it. That's just not it for a lot of us. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think for the first, I mean, I was indoctrinated like a lot of people into thinking work ethic, work ethic, work ethic. But as I, I think the more disabled I became, the more I tortured myself with basically those mental memes about work until I reached a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Like my brain was too broken by accumulated trauma. My body was too broken by illness, med- medical negligence, like all of the things that formed the disabilities that I live with. So you just reach a certain you just reach a certain point where like unless you learn to locate your value as a human somewhere else other than what you're able to produce, you will die. Like you will like I got into such a bad headspace in my twenties whilst struggling to work a nine to five job, absolutely disintegrating in all respects, physically, emotionally, psychologically, in addition and that was just from the work itself and 
the the commuting time and all of the things that that my body would just just not built for any of that. And of course, having to travel long distances for accessible work, the irony of that, like having to go to the one accessible workplace that I could work at, but having to commute for two hours to get there. So that's four hours every day that I'm losing uh, while I slowly die under fluorescent lights and public transport. Um, It's just so violent to our bodies. It's just not the way that we're supposed to live and that we can live and you know, again, I say that as someone who was able to work just barely able to work a nine to five for a number of for my twenties, and then more trauma happened, and then I lost the capacity to do even that. So, you know, I I've been disabled for most of my life. This is happening to people all the time, all the time. Formerly able people losing their capacity to work very suddenly, and for those people. If the reason that they are disabled is not a motor vehicle accident or something like that, there's no support for them. The NDIS is increasingly hard to access. What do you do? Is the labor movement going to advocate for you? Our left is going to advocate for you. What we're finding now is that that's not happening, which is why we're having this discussion. But anyway, just getting back to what you were saying about being indigenous and finding the system so violent to our our bodies and beings and spirits. When I'm thinking of the things that inspire my anti-capitalism, it's not necessarily published anti-capitalists and theorists either in the global north or the so-called global south who inspire me. It's actually the women in my my own culture and the role we used to play in our communities. And so for those who are unaware, I don't think I said it at the beginning, but my people are going to know people who are indigenous to a part of Papua New Guinea. And um, traditionally, we did two things that inform how I think about labor relations and and how we need to organize our societies or should organize societies for the health, what I call the health of the whole, which is the health of everyone. All right. So two things my people did traditionally that inform how I think about these things is that we love to rest. Like it's it's our favorite thing to do. We were subsistence farmers traditionally. So once you have your crop sorted, you've caught your fish, you've done what you need to do in terms of food that day, you can chill for the rest of the day. <laughs> and I know that was the privilege of us having um, populated lands that were really abundant. Like my my um, island is a volcanic island um, and it's very fertile. Like it's Jack and the Beanstalk land. Like you could throw beans out a window and there will be a, a full abundant tree growing there in a couple of months. It's very it's a very fertile soil and fertile area that is changing because of climate change so thank you global north but yeah that was it was fundamental to the way that we organized our social lives we love to rest and we and the second thing is that we share and redistribute resources so that no one and i mean no one goes without having their basic needs met so no one is left behind so i think we can look at western anti-capitalist thinkers and anti-capitalist um, think is in the in the so-called global south, and we should, particularly in the global south. But I also think we can, if you know, if you have an indigenous lineage, reclaim values embedded within our indigenous cultural lineages to inform what we envision next, and yeah, to start thinking about what needs to be created to start shifting the economic relations of society from the grassroots upwards. I'm really interested in hearing more from disabled 
Indigenous peoples think about the stuff and think specifically about, you know, how do we meet everyone's material needs? That basic, like, let's start there because we understand we need to ground, you know, our disability politic and sovereignty. That is absolutely essential. There is no liberation for anyone without abolishing settler colonialism and restoring what was stolen from First Peoples here. And then we also need to think about the, the material needs of everyone. Those two things to me are, are essential to developing a disability justice framework where we are in this location. And yeah, I, I see, I, I totally see Indigenous peoples and Black peoples leading that for sure going into the future. And I would really encourage anyone listening, if you have an Indigenous lineage, Oh, you identify as a black anti-capitalist, like we need you to start thinking about disabled people and all of the people who cannot work as central to anti-capitalist politics. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Do you want me to share your quote or do you want to say it? (laughs) I don't remember saying this, but go on. Uh, It's like been playing in my head ever since you said it. When we were talking about this, planning this conversation, Pauline said, I want to live according to my own rhythms and not have to accept destitution as a result. Um, I think that's so powerful. And yeah, it's like, why do we have to accept that? Like, as as Indigenous people, as disabled people, as traumatized people, as, um, as sick people... I agree with everything that you've shared just now. Uh, people need to to stop basing their self-worth on their capacity to do work and stop projecting that onto people that can't do that work. Like you were saying, like you had to find your, your self-worth and your value outside of your capacity to, to do work, otherwise you would have died. Yeah, that I'm completely the same and I... I've had to I've had to develop uh my identity outside of being able to do work to be able to learn to love myself and value myself outside of professional achievement because that's what my body required me to do and I always try to give that to you know people my friends that are you know that aren't as sick as me because it it's 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 this capitalist lie that messes with everyone even the most highly productive people think that they're still not doing enough they still feel like failures because they're conditioned to feel that way by capitalism and I'm always having conversations with my friends that do have the ability to work that are you know I always hear them hear them down on themselves feeling bad that they haven't done more of the things that they wanted to achieve and um, that they aren't you know their failures professionally or whatever that they feel lazy they feel whatever whatever I'm always trying to like gently you know hold space for for their conditioning and everything and just give them like that unconditional love and just say like you are valuable just if you if you just like laid down for like 90 years and you didn't move like you would still deserve to live and you would still deserve love and connection like intrinsically we have value every single being every single thing 
every single living thing on this earth. And that's such a simple idea. And that's what we're taught as children as well. Like you are lovable just as you are, but then we're told that, but then the world is also telling you the exact opposite. (laughs) Everyone really internalizes that really, really deeply. And people do die because of it, um, because they lose their ability to work. You know, especially like, yeah, like uh, we, we were talking about the working class white male who is rendered disposable when he becomes injured. Yeah, that's like a big problem with people that have really fast paced, like corporate lives and, and things like that. They And, and, and um, working class people that spend their entire, entire lives performing um performing physical labor and everything like once they retire or um they're not able to do that work anymore they experience like incredible depression and they lose themselves completely because they have built their entire value and and worth on that and people shouldn't shouldn't die because um because they can't work or because they because they don't know how to live they can't see their own value outside of their ability to to perform labor that's not right and i think people know that deep deep down and people have to listen to their spirit to their hearts like you don't have to be doing start doing work at all times like we're just not built for that we we have to rest and we have to build our identity and our self-worth and find our value outside of our ability to perform labor and and make capitalists richer and what and make capitalists richer yeah exactly like why 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 should we value ourselves on how how much we how much money we make billionaires that's so obvious as a as a capitalist brainwashing mechanism it's it's basic stuff guys the conditioning is is strong i know but like let's let's move forward because we we are it's time <laughs> it's long it's long overdue so that's all i wanted to say yeah i mean the disabling effect of work itself i don't mean it's slow it's slow violence against bodies it's really you know even for i mean i think most people think when they hear about work being disabling, they think of, you know, the working class person who's doing um, a a physically intense job, getting injured on the job or something like that. But all of it is disabling. All of it is disabling. Spending long hours on a factory floor is disabling. That's going to have an impact on your body over time. It absolutely will. It's inevitable. And so everything you said, and I just the disability justice approach to anti-capitalism and organizing around the stuff centers not the worker at all. And that's a kind of radical to say that, but it's not centering. If labor justice is about centering the worker, disability justice is about centering the disabled person, regardless of whether they're able to work or not and whether they want to. Work is not necessarily a moral good within the framework that we're talking about. So before we jump into the next topic, I think we'll have a little music break. The track you're going to hear is by a black neurodivergent legend, Nina Simone, and it is called I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. I 
wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear for the whole round world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish you could know what it means. To be me, then you'd see and agree that every man should be free. I wish I could give all I'm longing to give. I wish I could live like I'm longing to live. I wish I could do. Here to stay. So our next topic, um, we sort of titled Pandemic Reflection, Accessible Rest for Collective Survival. The pandemic has taught us a lot of things, whether, I mean, it has a lot to teach us, whether we want to learn from it or not. And so that's what this segment of our discussion today will be about. People are really quick to keep things moving along. to nearly three years into the pandemic to go, you know, quote, back to normal, unquote. I think that rest is a huge theme of um, what the pandemic has to teach us. And I remember feeling uh, so relieved when we were in lockdown for the first time. Obviously, lockdown sucked (laughs) in a lot of ways, but I was just so relieved to feel the world slow down. And, you know, so many things happened because of the less human activity, like, you know, waterways becoming less polluted, uh, things like that. Like, there were so many benefits to millions, billions of people being forced to slow down. And, yeah. We should still be doing that, not locking down necessarily, but living slower, resting more. 
resting is safe. Um, when we rest more, when we slow life down, there's lower transmission rates, less deaths, less creation of variants. But we just don't seem to want to do that collectively. We don't seem to want to do what will be what will make the pandemic less worse for all of us. And I think I think that's because sort of collectively in this state of really deep denial and haven't really processed the last two, nearly three years of the pandemic, the trauma that we went through together kind of before we had the vaccine and through all the lockdowns, it was really hard. It was really traumatic. And I don't think people want to face that. Uh, we're not ready to process it. And when you don't process trauma and ongoing trauma, you stop being able to react to it. And I think that's what we're seeing now with the casting off of any and all COVID safety precautions. And it just makes no sense it makes no sense. Um, we are still in a pandemic. We are. And people are still dying. And it's the more vulnerable people. So why wouldn't we continue to, to do small things like wear masks in crowded indoor environments, on airplanes, in Ubers? Why do we not like want to do that for each other? We're really just playing into the hands of like billionaire capitalists when we all agree to just go back to normal and pretend that this isn't happening still. it's It makes no sense because we're just making the pandemic more prolonged. We're creating more variants. We're making it worse for ourselves. And I think that is really something to do with the trauma that we all sort of experienced. Um, and unless we rest properly, instead of rushing to go back to work and um, continue being productive and pretending everything's normal, unless we really rest and take time to like deal with um, deal with like this historical life changing event that is still happening, we're gonna just keep making it worse for ourselves. Making small changes to mitigate a life or death risk, why wouldn't we do that? Especially for people that are more vulnerable and more isolated. Why would we not extend that care? Just small things, you know? It may, Yeah, it really makes no sense to me. Um, um, yeah, to that point, sorry to jump in. No, please, yeah. There's, um, that's one thing that I've, I really struggle with because I completely understand the impulse to want to get out of the house and for things to ret quote unquote return to normal as soon as possible. And just, yeah, I really understood that. Like at the beginning of the year, I know it was really distressing for a lot of, for many, many immunocompromised people to see how quickly people who don't believe in the government <laughs> were very quick to listen to the government's instructions about dropping all safety measures and just jumped on that train immediately. That was, I mean, it was predictable, but I think what was deeply hurtful to a lot of immunocompromised people was the fact it was people who don't believe in the government <laughs> immediately, immediately dropping all concern for safety measures and protection of, you know, extremely vulnerable people and just carrying on in ways in public space that it was as if like we were not in the middle of the pandemic. 
And I think the thing that I struggle with in regards to processing that, a lot it's always argued in the in terms of like the mental health of the people. And I understand that like it's so important to congregate with people. It's important for co-regulation. It's important to get on a dance floor and move. All of this stuff is important. However, it's not like immunocompromised people and disabled people don't have mental health challenges. I would argue that we have more because of the layers of oppression and because of the, the depth of marginalization that we were dealing with before the pandemic. You know, so many people got a taste of what our lived realities are during the, you know, first months of the pandemic and those very extreme, you know, quote unquote safety measures, which by the way, I didn't agree with. I didn't agree with the carceral response of the state. I didn't agree with any of the of those measures and the way that the quote unquote public health response was handled. However, People got a taste of the isolation and the confinement that so many immunocompromised people and disabled people live with all the time, all the time. Spare a thought for their mental health. Like, spare a thought for them. Like, how is it that the, the mental health of one population is allowed to happen at the expense of another when all it would require was for someone to wear a mask to mitigate a life or death risk? It makes absolutely no sense. I've listened all year to the arguments defending this behavior. At this point, I thoroughly reject every single one of them because it just doesn't make any sense. And when let's go back to the labor organizing. Why are people who are labor justice activists holding spaces that do not require masks? What are you doing for the immunocompromised workers? Do they not exist anymore in the pandemic? It makes absolutely no sense. And this is what I really wanted to get at with this you know, with this topic, which is do better. Really, really, really do better. Everything that non-disabled people have to deal with, disabled people have to deal with, and then some. To a much higher degree, I would argue, particularly if you're poor, multiply marginalized, if you're a black fella, like the levels that you have to deal with are really extreme. And I know the lockdowns were really hard. I didn't agree with them. I didn't agree with the way they were handled. I totally understand and support the need to congregate. I'm just saying there are ways to mitigate risk even when you congregate. And I heard from way too many people during the first months of this year when all the people who aren't concerned about COVID, which is basically younger people who are not immunocompromised, you know, flock to festivals, flock to all kinds of events where people were congregating without masks, without any safety measures. And you know, I get that. I understand that. I understand the impulse. What I don't understand is not masking, not taking rat tests, not doing the bare minimum to protect the other people in your communities, even in your social circles. I was hearing from disabled people who live in share houses whose housemates were exposing them to like just absolutely ridiculous risks, bringing people home on masks, bringing multiple people home, coming back from festivals without taking a rat's test or going to festivals without thinking about where else they were going to stay for a period of time so that their immunocompromised husbands wouldn't die. Like, it's that real. It is that real. So I think I'm at this point, I'm actually done being understanding. <laughs> and I need, I just need people to do better because it's utterly ridiculous. And again, I totally understand the need to congregate. I have the same need, like so many people do. But there are so many things that don't even involve vaccination that you can do to mitigate a life or death risk for the most marginalized people in our community. Yeah, absolutely. There is a bare minimum of, uh, you know, 
risk management that we can all take. Um, there is a bare minimum of empathy that we can extend to people that are more vulnerable to COVID. And the fact that we're, that it's just socially acceptable to not do that and not extend that empathy is, is not okay. It's so distressing to think about and to continue to see um, from just the general public and from loved ones and, you know, um, people that are just not willing to do just a really, really basic amount of um, risk management to protect other people. We have to center immunocompromised people's voices when we're when we're dealing with the pandemic and how we approach it. Why exactly what you said? Why would we li- trust the government as leftists? As you know, why would we just accept that? Oh, it's suddenly okay for us to just not wear masks. And um, why why is it okay for workers with COVID to have to go to work with COVID now? That's ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing any of that. It makes no sense. If we all are so unhappy that COVID is with us, then why wouldn't we just make changes, Make continue to make small changes to make less transmissions happen? The denial just makes it worse. The apathy just makes the pandemic worse. And exactly what you were saying about, you know, um, I, I absolutely agree. We need, we all need to, to, we all need to be with each other. We all need to dance. We all need to connect. Mental health is really important, but yeah, everyone's mental health is important. Everyone's right to congregate and have connection and support and love and community is important. And the more that people refuse to um, to take those small, to make those small changes, these small acts of care, the more vulnerable people have to continue to be denied um, the right to congregate and see their friends especially immunocompromised people. As the cases continue to rise, then very sick people just cannot risk spending time with loved ones. Why wouldn't we just do small things to help out, (laughs) to help people not die? It makes no sense to me. And I constantly think about who has access to space and that has always been a really contentious thing obviously people with more privilege have always had more access and right to space but now with the pandemic with covid there are now even more extreme life or death stakes over people's entitlement to space and to spaces yeah it makes me feel like we're like living in squid game or um it feels like Russian roulette, how people will gather in the thousands to go to a festival or whatever and not not do things like take take rats when they get home and just things like, yeah, just things like something as small as like sharing your vape with <laughs> with other party goers or just like not being careful. Like it's just it makes me feel really strange how when these large-scale events um, in crowded indoor areas with a lack of ventilation could mean that people 
more isolated, more sick, with the lack of access to the space, could die as a result of the uh, our entitlement, people's entitlement to just not care and just gather. And that feels really bad. <laughs> that feels really bad. Um, and that it, that it's such a minority of us that, that I think about that. And I get it. We all have COVID fatigue. We all don't want to think about it. But like the more that we do to prevent transmission, the less we'll have to continue to deal with it. You know, it's like, let's just do what's logical because what's logical is also the right thing to do. Being empathetic, caring for one another and resting, taking care of our bodies, processing what we've all been through makes us all safer basic stuff really basic stuff and i feel really do i really do feel alienated and abandoned by leftists and by people that are supposed to care or um that you know present themselves as people that care um it's like why are we why does that care only extend so far um and not all the way um yeah yeah and uh Something I wanted to add to that is, you know, we talked about the the risk to people who are marginalized in our community. I don't know, it's it seems like people are forgetting how the virus operates too, because the risk isn't just for people who are free to move in the community or even people who are at home, like housebound disabled individuals. The risk is also there for people in prison who are in confined spaces, in detention. So uh, I know it's it's I know it seems it's very abstract, but every time we fail to take these precautions when we're moving around in in the community and i'm not thinking of festivals i'm thinking to the supermarket to the chemist to the post office to the basic things that we all need to go to right if we're not taking precautions there that increases the risk tremendously for people in prisons that you will never visit and never know you know that's how the virus got from china to a nursing home in australia there's so many shades of climate change debate in this because it's because it's an a quote unquote invisible threat or invisible danger, people can sort of put it out of mind and bury it and forget or deliberately forget how the virus transmits and how everything we do here has an impact on people across borders, borders including the borders of a detention center or a nursing home or you know a, a group home, any of these carceral facilities because that's what essentially group homes are as well. So, um, yeah, it's just I would like to issue a challenge for leftists and for people who identify with quote-unquote progressive politics, although I don't like that word, but essentially anyone who anyone who is anti-state, anyone who would like to see the settler colony go away, like this, getting this right is essential. What did we talk about for two years? We talked about community care. This is community care. And what I've witnessed all year is people failing miserably on the most basic elements of it. Something else I'd like to add to that too is if we're looking at the topic rest is survival, immunocompromised people have not had a rest at all. And their ability to rest this year, I would argue for a lot of people, has been completely obliterated by the behavior of people who aren't immunocompromised. And I think it's something that we all need to think about. I don't identify as someone who's immunocompromised. I live with people who are. I am disabled and physically disabled and, and 
I've had health issues this year, so I don't know what impact the the virus will have on me, but I'm not concerned for myself. I'm concerned for all of the people who are severely immunocompromised in my life, many of whom have already had the virus multiple times because they've been forced to work in conditions where they caught it. Going back to, again, once again, employers and um, workplaces not voluntarily masking when many people have the option to, many people have access to it. And of course, employers should be organizing to ensure that their employees have that. But even in other spaces where um, work teams could be proactive in taking care of each other, I'm not seeing that happening. And it's really, it's really worrying because if we want the revolutionary future that we all say that we do, we're failing some of the most basic things this year. We're failing miserably. Yeah, do better, do better. We can all do better. And it's it's not that much um, effort to just do a tiny bit of, uh, to, to extend a tiny bit of care for those people that are out of sight. It shouldn't be out of sight, out of mind. Um, like we should all be, we should all care about immunocompromised people, people that are in detention, people that are detained, people that are incarcerated, people in care and age facilities. So many of those environments lack um, access to proper care and are very poorly ventilated. The virus spreads rapidly through confined, confined spaces. We need to just hold that in our awareness. Totally. And then just to reiterate, I mean, prisons are full of disabled people. Prisons are full of people who are immunocompromised and who are disabled and made immunocompromised by being in prison and in detention, including immigration detention. So I think it's something that we really, anyone who's on the left, anyone who is progressive, anyone who is genuinely and truly for the end of the settler colony needs to ask themselves why they can't put on a mask to go to the supermarket or to the post office or to the chemist where immunocompromised people are often congregating to get scripts and other things. Yeah, something to think about. Okay, are we going to get into like other stuff? Just sort of touching on, yeah, just a little bit more of how how we relate as Indigenous people to the concept of work, to the concept of um, care. I also think differently. I don't think in a really sort of Western way. It's really hard for me to think that way, even though, you know, I was born here and raised here and everything. Um, Like the way that I make sense of the world is through storytelling and symbolism and through archetypes and recurring motifs and themes. And I think that that is really related to me being Polynesian, um, where storytelling and symbolism is really a huge part of our um, indigenous culture. And as well as that, I think that nature is um, a really important guide and teacher, and there's so much to learn from it. And so the way that I understand COVID and the pandemic, I try to sort of think about it as a teacher um, and what is it saying to us? What is it, what is it trying to hammer home in this chapter of like our lives on Earth? Um, in this chapter of humanity as a species, and I think there's a lot there's a lot been that has been written about how COVID came about by people with far more scientific brains than I, talking about it as a result of mass industry 
industrialization, um, mass destruction of ecosystems, these these human made changes to our climate resulting in the development of new viruses and things like that. And when we take that into account and when I think about COVID, I ask myself, like, what are the major themes that COVID has brought up for us collectively as a species? And for me, it is collective care. It is care in general, um, interpersonal care, but also individual care. I feel that we're fighting for our lives as a species um, to stay alive. And those that are in power, uh, the dominator culture, the ones that control the fates of billions, currently seem to hold the cards on how, like, how that, how this fight will play out. And if we do want to live, and I know. I know we do. We want to survive. Um, We don't want to be snuffed out. Then as individuals, as small communities, we can't leave it up to governments and businesses and people in power to take care of us. Since, you know, all of human history has shown us that those in power, um, that hoard wealth, that is their primary priority even in the face of complete and total destruction of the planet and our own species, we, we who have less power have to begin to take it upon ourselves to develop serious alternatives to care for one another through the pandemic. We have to take on board the themes of what the pandemic is hitting home for us, what it's highlighting, which is care And that means as individuals, we do have to make the small changes that make a huge, huge difference to more vulnerable people. And I think we, I think that COVID is not done with us. It's still, it's going to continue to teach us and to reiterate these themes until, until we get it or we don't. And I just really want people to start listening more to nature (laughs) and to, paying attention, like what are the large themes here? And just really think about that. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, that's all I wanted to say on that topic. Um, yeah. Yeah, I completely. I mean, so much of what you said about having a different, I, I don't know if we could call ourselves neurodivergent in a different way. Indigenous neurodivergence. Is that a thing? Can we come up with a pun? Indigenous, oh, indigenous, oh, I can't, never mind. We'll get there. We'll get there. We have to come up with a name for it. Yeah. Because I totally know what you're saying. And I'm I, my brain is set up in a very similar way. I don't think I fit into any classic category of neurodivergence, but my brain is not linear. It does not work the way that most workplaces require it to work, which is sort of connects to our earlier discussion about needing to work and wanting to work, but according to our own rhythms. Yeah. We are basically out of time, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about a project that you're doing at the moment that is coming up that you have some funding for. So do you want to talk about that? Yes. Just so quickly, I got an arts grant um, to do a a photographic series um, and I'm so happy and excited um, to uh, sort of plug that, but also to do a bit of a call out. to um, uh, Black, Indigenous and Pacific Islander people living with disability and chronic illness, um, neurodivergence. Um, I, 
I want to give you money <laughs> to take your photograph and to, you know, it's not just um, a portrait series, but also I want to to give people that are, yeah, um, multiply marginalized, um, living within the margins of the margins, um, a chance to share their thoughts and feelings. Um, and, um, yeah, so... I'm really, um, I really invite you all to contact me, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll share in the the show notes or whatever, um, how you can do that. Um, uh, yeah, um, I just wanted to plug that. Um, and I want it not just to be people that live in Melbourne, um, uh, people that live in remote communities and in regional areas are, um, uh, I want to uplift them and give them a platform to be seen and heard as well. So, um, yeah, if you fit any of that kind of description, hit me up, contact me. If you would like to be part of this um, project, um, I would love to get to know you and have talks with you about that. Um, yeah. And just so quickly, I want to also shout out, um, uh, the Sicko Vision community that I'm a part of, which was started by my beautiful friend, Grant, uh, Grant Grunwald, who is a disabled queer artist and comic. Um, it's a uh, film stream on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Sicko Vision. Um, it was started, uh, during the pandemic, it was a place for us um, to watch films and it actually started, um, uh, we just streamed films about disability and um, chronic illness and it was an amazing place um, to do that and um, there's sort of a limited amount of films that about that. So we watch uh, all films now, any films now and um, it's a, I've made an incredible online um, community. I've made so many friends and it's um, mostly disabled and chronically ill, almost entirely queer and trans people. Um, it's incredible and um, we stream like all the time. So <laughs> uh, come through and thank you Grant for starting this beautiful community. Like it has been an absolute lifeline for me. So I'm so happy to be a sicko and I love all my sickos. So yay. <laughs> yeah, that that's all. <laughs> Well, um, thank you for that. And we'll definitely put your contact details, um, the details for the project in the show notes. This show after the broadcast will be available on the 3CR website. And yeah, you can find all the details for that on there. And uh, I want to thank you again, Leilani. This was awesome. I think we covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you for um, inviting me to do this again. I It gives me so much love and I and so much um yeah it's so restorative so powerful like just to just to be a part of and just to like listen to to all of it and just it's it really is so important the work that you do every year Pauline um I'm so thankful so thank you thank you (laughs) shout out to 3CR for letting me do what I want to (laughs) do it's nice a little haven a little haven in the colony (laughs) <laughs> yes, they, thank you so much, 3CR. <laughs> You've been listening to F Work, a special program for 3CR's Disability Day broadcast. We're going to close out with a song by Black neurodivergent legend Nina Simone. The track is called Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Stay tuned afterwards for more Rest is Survival Disability Day programming.
on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. 